financial success. Because success is something I think most of us aspire to in different ways, depending on how we define it. And my question to us this morning is, how do you handle it when it comes? Or when it will come? Or when it has come? How do you handle success? Let me illustrate it to you like this. Earlier on this year, I was um, with a very good friend of mine, one of my best mates, got two kids, nine and six, and I was playing with the little six-year-old. And my point here is that success is not always easy to handle. Success is not always easy to handle, as this six-year-old proved to me. So we were playing a game of snap pairs, you know, just like cards on the floor, um, animals, you've got to match, the, match the, the second animal to the same animal. So they're all on the floor, and you like, pick up a giraffe. Oh, no, where, where's the giraffe? Don't, oh, hedgehog. I was terrible at this game. I couldn't remember. You're supposed to remember where the cards are, pick up a camel. Where's the camel? Hedgehog again. Don't, oh, couldn't do this game. I was terrible. My memory is pretty average, some of you all know. This little boy, Theo, it turned out to be some kind of snap pears ninja. It's absolutely incredible. He would turn over the car, giraffe, where's giraffe? Dink, giraffe again. He was absolutely thrashing me. One game, two games, three games. He hammered me. He's only six at this game of uh, snap, this game of pears. And such was the success that Theo was enjoying that after the third game, he kind of stood up as only a six-year-old could do, put his hands in the air and said, I am the man. <laughs> And then later on, as we were leaving the house, I was getting ready to go, still mourning my failure at this game of pairs, getting my coat, said, hello, Theo, thanks very much for the game, I'll see you later. And no joke, he just looked at me very carefully, very quietly, and said, I am the man. I'm <laughs> <laughs> success, is, success really has gone to your head. Success is difficult to handle, or at least sometimes, as Theo discovered. And actually, if you look any online at all, people in the worlds of business and enterprise and sport and politics and the arts, experts are queuing up, actually, to tell us just how difficult success is to handle. And indeed, it's not always the best thing for us. And this morning, we're going to continue with our series called Sketches in the book of 1 Samuel, looking at the life of David. And we're going to be in chapter 18. And David is going to show us an awful lot about how to handle success. So last week, we saw that David was the, David's success was kind of the trigger for Saul's envy, if you were with us last week. And this week, we're going to turn the spotlight back on to David and look at him and see how does he pursue success and how does he handle it when it comes. There's lots and lots for us to learn this morning. If you're new to the series or new to the Bible, new to church, you're really welcome. You need to know that the story is set in 1000 B.C., the current king Saul, as I said, is eaten up with envy at the success of David, who's the young pretender to the throne. And uh, so much so that Saul has just tried to kill David with a, with a, a spear. And we're going to pick up the scene in verse 12 of chapter 18. love to read it to you, and it'll be on the screen behind me as well. Saul was afraid of David because the law was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, here is my elder daughter Mirab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. 
And David said to Saul, who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the, Mah- the Mahalathite, for a wife. Now, Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law? Because I'm a poor man, I have no reputation. And the servants of Saul told him, thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Hold that thought, I will explain that later on. (laughs) Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the law was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Like I said, if your mind at the moment is kind of baffled by the thought of Philistine foreskins, don't panic. I will do my best to explain that uh, in a moment. (laughs) But for now... I hope what you're seeing is that throughout this passage, time and time again, the author is at pains to help us to see how successful David has been. It was mentioned in verse 5 that I, that I didn't, um, didn't read to you. Verse 14, verse 15, verse 30, we hear of the success of David. Now, bear in mind, David's a young man. He's probably 18, 19, 20 or so, we think. So he's winning military victories at that age on behalf of the Israelite nation and king. He's being promoted by the king to be the commander of a thousand soldiers. He has a growing fan base. I didn't read it to you, but if you were here last week, you'd have heard that there are hordes of women who are gathering around singing songs of adoration about him. And he's being offered the hand of marriage of a princess and to marry into the, into the royal family. He could not, I think we'd agree, he's experiencing considerable success. And I'm wondering, how is he able to handle that? How is he able, at such an age, to handle that? You see, normally, you give a young man that kind of success, any kind of success in his field, sport, music, arts, business, enterprise, whatever, and then you add the adoration of women and the offer of fame, wealth, and prosperity, that combination doesn't usually go well. We agree? It doesn't always go well for young men when they're given that kind of success. And yet, David seems to handle it remarkably well. He remains humble. Did you notice that? He continues to be successful, so it doesn't derail him. And thirdly, God is with him. He's enjoying the favor of God, friendship with God. And even though the king is trying to kill him, and even though that king has the throne that David knows is his, 
David is still prepared to keep serving that same king faithfully, bravely, and pretty effectively. How is he able to do that? How is he able to pursue success? And how is he able to handle it when it comes? He's got lots to teach us, I think, this morning. And we're going to learn three things. That we need to define success accurately. We need to tread carefully. And thirdly, we can pursue success confidently and humbly. Define it accurately. Tread carefully. Pursue it confidently and humbly. Number one, define success accurately. I would imagine at the end of this year, most of us will look back on the year, and we may not ask ourselves this exact question, but most of us will want to assess the year in some way, won't we? We'll look back on the year, and we'll ask ourselves something like, has this been a successful year? Might not use that language or do it that kind of formally, but most of us will assess the success of our year towards the end of 2017. Now, what's the dictionary definition of success? Because we need to define success accurately. The dictionary simply says that success is the accomplishment of an aim or a purpose. The accomplishment of an aim or a purpose. And I would uh, imagine that in this room, there are lots and lots of fantastic aims and purposes that you have that by the end of the year, you'll be able to use to kind of assess the nature of the year. Loads of them. We could even spend time now telling each other what are the aims and purposes that we have for the year that will help us know to a degree whether success has come our way. There are people here who, who want to raise children who are flourishing. People who have aims to make progress in the workplace and to be effective and creative. Students are amongst us who your aim might be just to pass the first year or just to, to find some good friends that I can settle into or it might be to absolutely smash the first year out of the park. All of us have different aims and purposes in the year. Those of us within the life of the church are wanting to maybe lead our life groups, lead our teams, be part of the life of the church and bring our skills and gifts to the table for its good. And the Bible teaches that right from the beginning, that desire that is in you to cultivate, to multiply, to express creativity, that's how God designed you to be. The Bible's clear that he designed you with those things in mind, or that DNA, if you like, in mind. So we see right at the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. I'm summarizing for you, but it tells us that God has made all people in his image, which in itself has enormous implications, and that his intention for us is that by filling the earth, that means by cultivating it, caring for it, bringing creativity to it, deploying our gifts and skills within it, stewarding it, by doing those things, we should fill the earth with his glory. That's God's original intention for the human race. In other words, I put it sometimes, God intends us to be a little bit like mirrors at 45 degrees. I've used this sometimes before. He intends us to be like mirrors at 45 degrees, by which I mean he has designed us in order that his glory, his love, his compassion, his character can, if you like, bounce off us or reflect through us out to other people. So the vertical nature of God can hit us at the 45 degree mirror and then can come out horizontally to the creation, to people around us. That's his intention for us to be like 45 degree mirrors. But what sin does, what the brokenness that humanity has experienced does, is it basically makes, you could say, sins like this, it makes the 45 degree mirror become a 90 degree mirror. It makes us far less concerned and indeed less able to reflect the vertical nature of God's glory and we've become far more concerned with reflecting our own glory. 
what Jesus Christ does by dying in our place and absorbing and defeating the power of sin and by rising back to life is he brings us into newness of life whereby once again we can go from being 90 degree mirrors back to being the 45 degree mirror that he made us to be able to reflect his glory to those around us and to partner with him in the renewal and the restoration of this creation now David didn't live this side of the cross But I think he had grasped something of this ultimate purpose with which human beings were created. Or you could say this ultimate definition of success that human beings have been given. You see, the ultimate reason he brings his considerable skills, military and leadership probably primarily at this point, is because he is most passionate about the glory of God. That's his ultimate definition of success, it seems. The fame and the renown and the glory and the honor of God, those are the things he cares the most about, and they are the ultimate definitions of a success, even though he experiences and indeed pursues, if you like, lower-level success in all kinds of different ways. How do I know that? Well, if you were with us before, in, in chapter 17, when it came to Goliath, David, it was clear, David was primarily motivated to go and take on Goliath because the glory of God was in doubt. The honor and the name of God was not being upheld. That's what's motivating David in partnering with God and leading the Israelites over and over again out against their Philistine enemies. Even his marriage, which might take place in rather uncertain circumstances to our modern ears. Even that, I think, you can see that his primary motivation is the glory of God. How so? Well, in that ancient culture, just like many other traditional cultures today, there was very much an honor-shame culture. And for David to have married anyone's daughter, let alone the king's daughter, without paying a bride price would have been a hugely shameful thing for him to do. And he hasn't got any resources to pay, as he's already said. So when he's given the opportunity to go and, if you like, earn it by defeating more of the enemies, he grabs it with both hands. So for him, his marriage becomes inextricably linked with defeating enemies of the people of God, thereby bringing more glory to God. Now, quick little pit stop, if you like, as to what on earth's going on with bride prices and murder and foreskins and all that kind of thing. That could be a whole other talk. Three quick things for you. Number one, if you're not sure about the history of this, the whole deal was that the people of Israel, one of the ways they were marked out as separate and part of the people of God was that the men were circumcised. Therefore, other men who at that point weren't part of the people of God were not circumcised. Point two, there are times in the Old Testament when God does do things or command things that to our modern ears are deeply shocking, that we find really hard. And when those times happen, and this is not so much one of them actually, as I'll explain in a second, but when those times do happen, I want to say it's really important to keep on exploring, to ask why, why would God do this? Why would God command this? Why would God allow this? How can his inherent goodness still be being worked out through these things? And it's really important to ask ourselves some questions. Namely, why, what's in my heart that means I'm so offended by what God's doing? Don't just skip over some of those really shocking things in the Old Testament. Explore them. Ask, about, ask what it tells us about God. Ask what it tells us about us. 
third point, and probably more pertinent in this particular passage, is that there are times, because God is coming into human brokenness, he enters into human culture and human civilization with all of its brokenness and restraints, God in his graciousness is outworking his redemptive purposes and plans within human culture. In this instance, within ancient culture in 1000 BC. So within here, God is pretty silent or neutral about, for example, the practice of women being traded with bribe prices and so on. He's silent about the idea of soldiers being mutilated and their foreskins being presented. Primarily, God is gracious enough to enter into a less than perfect human culture and still outwork his good and big redemptive purposes through it. Ask me more if you want to know more. Not that I have all the answers, but I'll put some more notes on the life group notes as well. When we come across tough stuff in scripture, we don't want to duck it, we want to try and understand it better. Hope that helps. If not, ask me afterwards. Primarily, primary thing, is that David's measure of success is, is God being glorified? That's his primary definition. So question, what's yours? What is your ultimate definition of success with which you will evaluate, let's say, 2017? The call of being a follower of Christ, being in the the family of God, is to make our ultimate definition of success his glory, about him, and actually not about us. And if it is the glory of God that is motivating, if it is seeing his kingdom increasingly renew and restore this earth, and seeing people encounter his love and his grace and explore faith, then I would say pursue success in all its different forms wholeheartedly. Pursue it wholeheartedly. Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, if you're seeking first the kingdom, all things will be added to you. To pursue by all means influence, and effectiveness, and prosperity, if it is ultimately for the glory of God. But, point two this morning, tread carefully. Tread carefully, because as Theo demonstrated for us, as I'm sure we've all seen, success does have its pitfalls. Three dangers, perhaps, I want to highlight from this passage that can come with success. Number one, success can go to our head. I don't think we need to do much work on that. We all know that success can bring about arrogance. Number two, success can stop us developing. It can actually cause us to stagnate rather than develop. Bill Gates, who knew a thing or two about success, said, success is a lousy teacher. It reduces smart people into thinking they can't lose. In other words, we, I think we know I think we all know what Bill Gates knew, which is unfortunately, and painful as it is, we learn more from our failures than our successes, don't we? And actually, lots of success cannot be the teacher that we need. Number three pitfall is that success can lead us away from God. Success can cause us to grow distant from God and become unaware of the reality of our need for God. How many of us have experienced that, I wonder? When things are going really well, smashing out the park in whatever context of life you're living in, sometimes when that's the case, we can be most vulnerable to one of the devil's most clever, subtle lies, which is, you don't, you don't really need God. He uses sometimes the very phrase that he used right at the beginning. Did God really say? It's what he always uses. You don't really need God. Look at it, you're knocking it out of the park. And, 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 and you did that. 
So success can actually be a real tripwire to us remaining close to God. We can start to neglect our, our need for time with God. We can start to neglect our need for, for time regularly exploring the wonder of the gospel, regularly encountering his presence in worship and in community and in teaching and so forth, regularly being empowered by his spirit to live lives full of risk and faith and generosity and love. Sometimes success can actually move us away from God. I was chatting to somebody just this week who was saying sometimes his most times of most distance from God have been when success has seemed to be at its most obvious because our, the reality of our need for God can be dulled sometimes by what success can, can do for us. But look at David. He seems to avoid all three pitfalls pretty successfully. Success doesn't go to his head. Did you notice that? When he's offered the king's daughter in marriage, having lost out when he, when he beat Goliath, he says twice, who am I? Who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? No sense of entitlement in him. Humility remains right at his core. And he's humble enough to keep on serving the king, the king that's trying to kill him. Continues to serve him. That's profound humility. Number two, David doesn't stop developing. Doesn't fall for Bill Gates' trap. Doesn't stop learning. He's asked to kill 100 soldiers. Kills 200. He's won the princess's hand in marriage, but he doesn't sit back and hide. He's back out there on enemy lines, learning how to command more men, learning how to defeat more enemies, learning how to win bigger victories. Doesn't stop learning. And thirdly, David doesn't seem to grow distant from God at all. Verse 28 says, Saul knew that the Lord was with David. That's a profound comment. Because Saul is a man consumed with envy. We've said before, part of his tragedy is that he's just deteriorating in front of us. His character is fragmenting. It's tragic to watch. And yet he knows David is a man who was close to God, who's friends with God, who is intimately acquainted with God, who knows the power of God, and is actually consumed fundamentally with the glory of God. So David avoids the pitfalls of success because his ultimate measure of success is, is God being glorified? What about you? What's the ultimate measure of success? And I appreciate some of you thinking, Philip, success is not my issue at the moment. I've got lots of other challenges. Success is not what I'm facing. But as we'll look at in a moment, there are all kinds of ways in which we're both called to success, we can expect to experience success, and when we do, we need to know how to handle it. So kind of bear with me if you're thinking this is not chiming with me at the moment. Furthermore, one of the wonders of the gospel's implications for how we treat success, that the glory of God is our primary motivator, is it means that failure suddenly becomes a very different experience or can be a different experience. How many of us have known what it is when failure comes along just to kind of be crushed by that? for it to feel like a punch in the guts. I want to tell you that when you start to make the glory of God your primary measure of success, actually not only does it help you handle success, it helps you handle failure as well. Failure does not need to be crushing if you apply the gospel. In fact, even more, if, if, if the glory of God is your ultimate measure of success, failure can actually be a means to that end. Let me tell you what I mean. Imagine for a moment, whether you are or not, imagine you're a parent of a four-year-old child, whether you are or not, or you have been. 
Imagine you're at a birthday party. Lots of other four-year-olds and lots of other parents. And your four-year-old has been pretty tricky all day. And through the afternoon, you've been watching them get trickier and trickier. And all the things that you feel like you've cultivated in them are starting to slowly fragment in front of you, culminating by the end of the afternoon in the mother of all four-year-old meltdowns. Like an absolute, off the scale, off the chart, enormous meltdown. This four-year-old is kicking and screaming like children and parents are physically retreating away from this child of yours. Now, if your desire to be a successful parent and to raise flourishing, kind, uh, confident children, which is a great desire to have, if that, though, is kind of the ultimate measure of success, if it's a thing by which you kind of define truly success and therefore yourself, then that moment of a four-year-old meltdown is going to be a crushing experience. Because what's happening is not simply a four-year-old having a meltdown. What's happening is you are failing and being shown to be a failure. However, if, as much as you want to be a successful parent who raises flourishing, confident, kind children, if your ultimate definition of success is wanting to be a 45-degree mirror that reflects some, the glory and love and compassion and patience of God, if that's the ultimate definition of success, this apparent moment of failure is not only manageable, it's actually a means to that end. At this point, some of you actually are parents, unlike me, are saying, this is all great in theory, you wait. <laughs> but here's the theory. If, in that moment of, ah, if you can pause and say something like, Holy Spirit, would you empower me? Would you do what Jesus promised you would do and come alongside me as my helper? I need resources in this moment of love and patience and humility that I just don't have. Would you come and provide them? Then in that moment, it's actually possible that you become that 45 degree mirror and other parents who are looking on actually see something of the very glory and love and compassion and faithfulness of God, not just bouncing off you but being reflected to them, your own child gets to experience something of the glory of God in that moment. As the gospel ensures that you're a 45 degree mirror and the character of God bounces off you, reflects through you, and others experience it. That's what happens when we keep on exploring the gospel, encountering the love of God for ourselves, and crying out for the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So we need to define it accurately. Number one. Number two, we need to tread carefully. But number three, we can pursue it, as I'm just starting to hint at, we can pursue success confidently and humbly. You see, being a Christian is not about pursuing a modern cultural version of success that says something like, you are what you do or what you achieve. We're living a very counter-cultural drumbeat in that sense. If that's how you are living, when you do succeed, it probably goes to your head, and when you do fail, it can be a crushing experience. But I also want to say to us this morning, being Christian is not about just staying clear of influence and effectiveness and prosperity and achievement in a kind of nervous way. We shouldn't, I don't think, be nervous, just like David wasn't nervous, about being successful in the things that we give our time and our talents and our treasure and our resources to. David wasn't, and nor should you. If we're continually exploring the gospel, 
you start to remind yourselves of things, not least humility and confidence, which in combination is a truly beautiful thing. When you remind yourselves of the gospel, it does, it does this to you, if you do this well. It reminds you, I should probably be the humblest person in this room, this boardroom, this classroom, this lecture room, this mums and toddlers groups. My sin is so serious that God himself had to die for me. That humbles you to your bootstraps. And when you keep on exploring the gospel, you also remind yourself, I'm affirmed to the skies. I'm not only humble to my bootstraps, I'm affirmed to the skies. That same God of the universe has told me and has guaranteed his love for me every single day. I should also be the most confident person in this boardroom, classroom, lecture room. Because I'm loved every day by the God of the universe, not because of what I've done, but because of what he's done. I tell you, people who've got humility and confidence in combination are powerful, beautiful, effective people. The gospel makes us both intensely humble and supremely confident. How do you get that? How do you get that? I've said by exploring the gospel, but also because of who the gospel points us to, because of who this whole series points us to. I keep saying each week, look into the sketch of this series, the sketch of each moment of David's life. You constantly see another figure in the background. Last week, Tim Keller helped you to see that, that, that this figure was behind Jonathan. This week, this figure, Jesus Christ, is back behind David. You can see him in the background. Think about it. David was so humble because he knew his strength lay in God. Jesus Christ was so humble, and yet he knew he was God. David risked his life for his bride. Jesus Christ gave his life for his bride, for you. Jesus, like David's, knew incredible moments of apparent success. He knew what it was to be fated and adored because of his teaching and miracles. And he was never once distracted from his ultimate mission of bringing glory to God by bringing you to God. He knew how to handle success. He also experienced what looked like abject failure. Crucified in humiliation a sign above his head, mocking his claims to be king. And yet still, do you remember? In those very moments, he was able to forgive the very people tormenting him. He was still able to be that 45-degree mirror, reflecting the forgiveness of God to the people who were making his life most miserable, and indeed achieving the forgiveness of God. Jesus experienced what looked like total failure and reversed it into incredible success. And of course, he rose from the grave, the, the ultimate success of all time. Death defeated, and the beginning of the renewal and the restoration of this earth. You being brought to God, equipped and empowered to partner with him in that same process. So whatever your context is, whether it's the boardroom, or the classroom, or the lecture room, can't go any more rooms, <laughs> if it's the school gates, if you're answering the phone at work, if your tasks seem menial or mighty, the nature of Jesus Christ and the gospel means he, he, you have been united to him, you are experiencing fullness of life in him and are invited to do so, and to partner with him in being a 45 degree mirror that you were always intended to be, 
not a bystander in God's redemptive, restorative purposes, but a key part of those purposes, a mirror in which he wants to reflect something unique of his character through you. And therefore, you can confidently and humbly pursue success, all the things that you've been gifted to do. Pursue them and be the best that you can be in those things. Knowing that whether supposed success comes or whether abject failure comes, the primary success, the glory of God, can still be made known to those around you, whatever your context is. Jamie, can you come and help us to, to worship and respond, Ellen and George? I thought about different ways to help us respond, and part of me being the kind of activist that I am wants us to go and do stuff now. <laughs> but when... Um, the band were rehearsing the song we're going to sing in a moment about the greatness of God. I really, actually, the, the moment here is just to experience the very thing that we've been talking about, the glory of God. To make his glory our heart cry. To learn to have hearts that are fundamentally motivated by his fame, his renown, his glory. So we're not going to make this moment about God coming to do something for us necessarily, though he loves to do that, and he may well say all kinds of things as we respond and worship in a moment. Let's make these moments about learning to do the thing that meant David achieved remarkable things and actually the thing that we'll do forever and ever and ever, which is to make much of God, to be consumed by his glory, to learn to make it the bottom of our success measure this year and forever. Can we do that? Can we stand? I'd love to pray and then we will sing, worship, come and speak to Namdi if you sense God saying, things to us that are going to help us in that endeavor. Lord God, we thank you for what you did in David's life. We thank you that you took a young man, a young person. We thank you that you made your glory known to him in those isolated shepherd fields where no one was looking. He learned to be so consumed with your glory. He learned to worship you. He learned to be fascinated by you. And so when his life changed and he was thrust into the public sphere, the same measure of success existed. Is God being glorified? Am I reflecting the love of God? For a while it was a few sheep and suddenly it's tens of thousands of people but it's the same endeavor. God, would you teach us how to do that? Help us to pursue success in the things that you've given us to do, our workplaces, our family, the things we volunteer to and give our time and resources to. Help us to pursue those things wholeheartedly, confidently, and humbly with an underlying measure that says whether I succeed or whether I fail, I want the name of God to be made known. I want to be that 45-degree mirror that something of the character of God will reflect through and out. Holy Spirit, we say, empower us to do that. Amen. Hope you restore 
Every heart that is broken Great are you, Lord